Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming out to our uh, issue release party. My name is Micah Utrecht. I'm an editor here at Jacobin. Very glad to have a full house of uh, folks here at the May Day space. Uh, so our new issue, which is the reason we're gathered here, uh, is on inflation. So going to introduce Samir Santi. Uh, Samir has a lead editorial in the new issue of Jacobin, as well as, yeah. as well as uh, him being an assistant professor at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies and uh, is working on a book on uh, inflation. And I will let him uh, introduce Adam. So thanks so much. Thanks, Micah. Thanks, everyone. Um, And it's good to see so many people here today in spite of the uh, weather. I was a little worried about that, but... Better than the past few days, I guess. Um, well, anyway, I'm really I'm super excited to be here with uh, with Adam Tooze, who is, um, as I'm sure many of you know, a the I believe it's the Shelby Cullum Davis Professor of History at Columbia, um, and the director of the is it the the Institute for European Studies, the European Institute, as well as the author of a number of books that are really must-reads, I think, to understand the world we live in. Uh, most recently, I, and I don't have the after the colons off the top of my head, but Shutdown, which is about the sort of the political economy of the pandemic, crashed, I think probably the definitive study of the 2008 crisis and, and its sort of aftershocks that got us to just before the pandemic, and a, a terrific book, maybe the best book that I've ever read on World War One, The Deluge, as well as a classic, a couple of classic books on on German political economy, the sort of I mean, if you're one after another, like the definitive, the definitive, the definitive, which is maybe a little bit gassing Adam up too much for this, but um, the definitive book on the the political economy of the Third Reich, and then a very underrated book on on statistics and the German state in the interwar period. Uh, which I believe was his first. So, with all that said, um, Adam, I'm super excited to talk to you. Thanks so much for being here. The issue that we're here to talk about is called inflation, so the subject matter is fairly self-evident, but we may veer around and back and forth. But I want to start just by, you know, setting the stage a little bit. You know, we, we this has obviously been the most talked about economic issue for the last year and a half at this point, and initially... A lot of the talk was about supply chains, um, uh, this term that no one had ever heard about except for people in business school classrooms, and then suddenly it's in everyday discourse. But around that time, you know, Biden's focus on supply chains, and then Biden's critics before long are talking about the stimulus, Biden's economic policy, the overheating economy, people like Larry Summers, sort of a longtime pillar of Democratic Party, neoliberal orthodoxy, as well as like the entire Republican Party. Um, and then we get labor shortages, you know, everyone's sitting at home, not fattening on their unemployment benefits, playing Xbox, not going to work. And then we get a war in Ukraine and it disrupts gas markets. So over the last year and a half, a lot of stuff's happened, a lot of different kind of ideas circulating around why this is happening. So could you just start maybe by like, where are we at? Where, you know, it's October 2022, we're a month away from the midterms. What's going on with inflation right now? I think it really depends on where in the world you are. So um, in the U.S., we currently have something which I think in a bona fide sense um, you can describe as an inflation, by which I think we should mean, and I think economics, if it's honest with itself, means a truly general increase in the price of goods and services. And what needs to emphasize that, right, in, in, 
economic theory, capital and labor are not distinct, right, in, in pure economic theory. In kind of kitchen sink macro they are, and in critical political economy they obviously have to be. But if you're working from a general equilibrium style model of the economy, as orthodox economics does, you have absolutely no business distinguishing between labor and wage, which is the price of the service of labor and any other transaction, right? And in that kind of model, the kind of model that somebody like Milton Friedman is referring to when he talks about inflation, the great monetarist economist, and inflation is when the price of everything is going up, which leaves only one thing fixed against which you can measure that movement of the price of everything, which is money, the monetary numeraire, the, 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 the denominator. And that's kind of the situation we have in the U.S. right now, a general movement of prices, which started in sectoral levels, I was, I'm such a skeptic on this that for much of 2021 and early 22, I refused to refer to what was going on as an inflation because that concedes that it was general, whereas in fact, patently in the early stages, it was sectoral. And a relative price movement, the increase in the price of oil or gas or food, does not qualify as an inflation because you might very well expect that to cause other prices to go down. Because, you know, if the price of gas goes up, the price of cars will tend to go down because people don't want them as much, right? What we were actually seeing by early 2022, especially in the U.S., is something much more general, which does qualify as an inflation. But if you pivot to somewhere else in the world, if you pivot to Europe, it's still true that though their index, their, their, their statistical index shows a rate of inflation quite comparable to the U.S., the logic there is radically different in, the, in, the, in Europe still the overall increase in the index is overwhelmingly driven by energy because they're seeing such radical increases in energy prices there. Anyway, so long story short, at this point in the US, we actually are dealing with something which looks more like a classic general inflation. So everything is moving pretty much upwards in price, including wages. Not commensurately over the entire period of the inflation with prices, but certainly those are moving up too, which is what panics the Fed because when that happens they begin to realize they're actually dealing with something which is more like a general monetary avalanche, slow moving by historical standards, but nevertheless a kind of movement of all of the prices and wages in the system. And that's when they, that's when they really get nervous and start talking about inflation expectations in this sense that all of society is somehow becoming unanchored and needs re-stabilizing. And that's what they see their job as being to do. And, you know, when you get into the weeds and break down the indices, the highly significant thing that's happened is that we've moved from a surge driven by petrol and by a series of bottlenecks. You know, it was this period where the absurdities in the second-hand car, the used car market was driving the whole thing, right? To one where the big broad aggregates are. So, and in the modern economy, that's not manufacturing or industry. That's the service sector. And so wages began in the service sector. And in the service sector, wages and salaries are close to the frontier of total cost, right? There's not much else going on there. So that when they start moving, everything moves. And then most importantly, in the last couple of months, the momentum is being carried by the element which measures housing costs. So this is some combination of inflation in house prices, which was powerfully stimulated by 2020. And then that feeds through to rents. And in the latest issue of Jacobin, there's some quite nice data on, on that movement. And rent is the, is the key driver right now. So all of the questions really are, when will that cool off? How will it cool off? What will it take to cool off? Uh, so we've got kind of an uneven inflation globally, or 
if we're going to use the term. Moving to, and we got a Fed that's getting clearly a little bit anxious about what's going on. I, I want to focus now, move to the Fed, and this maybe we can spend a little bit of time talking about the Federal Reserve, central banking in the U.S. and central banking globally. You know, you had a piece in the Times yesterday. I got to say, I was like, the last few weeks I've been kind of in a decent <laughs> mood, things like, oh, you know, the polls with the you know Republicans may not, might not be as much of a bloodbath and so on. And then, and then I read your piece yesterday about like the impending global depression, and it, and it was quite souring. But I want to talk about this, right? So... The Fed, what we've seen in the U.S. over the last, what, handful of months, six months, is a Fed that's getting increasingly concerned and increasingly aggressive about combating this. And in the U.S., the Fed is really the only institution that tries to address inflation. And it does so, the way you put it, the way a lot of people put it, is through a pretty blunt instrument of interest rate increases. And, and as, you know, if you're following, you know, the press about this, it's fairly straightforward how this works. Interest rates go up. That makes it harder to borrow. When borrowing's more difficult, economic activity slows down. When economic activity slows down, wait, you know, unemployment rises, wages slow, and they've addressed the thing that they're really worried about. So I want to, I kind of, I guess I have like a sort of two-part question here. One is, where does this, you know, it, it seems like there's got to be a better way, right? It, it, one would think, one would hope, it's, certainly people in this room would hope that there's a better way of handling this. So first, where does this approach come from? You know, why is this sort of standard model for addressing inflation, this kind of very blunt instrument of interest rate hikes? And then second, you've argued that, and especially in this piece yesterday, you made the point that there's something quite distinctive about what's going on right now. I mean, this, is, this has been around for a while, and sort of in the first part, you might get to where it comes from. But there's something new going on right now that's quite alarming. And this pertains to your point in the first question about the sort of global unevenness of this problem. So can you talk a little bit about this, like what's going on with the Fed and central banks globally? Why is this the case? And why are you so worried about it? That's such an interesting question, which forks off in interesting ways in two rather different directions. Let me start with the, the less sort of conceptual and technical bit, first of all. So we are now going through a phase of tightening on behalf of the Fed and other central banks. And what's become clear over the last 12 months is that this is not just any old tightening, but the first, really, that we've seen comprehensively since the modern era of globalization, shall we date it, the 1990s, begun. So in the last 30 years, we've had this capitalist globalization on an epic scale but that's taken place, broadly speaking, against a relatively benign inflation, benign in the sense of inflation hawks environment. There hasn't been much inflation. And so the bias of monetary policy has been towards stimulus. And this is the first time, really, that the world economy is experiencing a really severe tightening of monetary policy. And it's not just the degree of tightening. In fact, that's the less dramatic thing. But the comprehensiveness of it, literally every central bank in the world other than the Bank of Japan and the People's Bank of China is tightening right now. And when you put those two things together, in other words, that we are, first, we are for the first time facing inflation in the modern global economy, the economy that you folks have grown up into in the last 30 years, and B, that this is more comprehensive than ever before, you suddenly, with this sort of judder, realize we've never been here before. I mean, we actually don't have any data set that will tell us what happens next. Like, there's nothing in there. We have the reverse, in other words, econometrics based on what happens when everyone loosens simultaneously, but we don't really have any serious empirical experience of what happens when everyone tightens simultaneously. The iconic 
moment, and this, by this point I can maybe segue to your second branch, the iconic moment of monetary policy tightening, which shapes the entire vision of modern central banks, came in 1979 with Volcker's shock delivered by the Fed, which was much more savage than the current rate increases. And it's worth putting this in perspective, because right now real interest rates in the US, given that inflation is 8%, are still negative. But the steps that the Fed is taking are quite dramatic. And globally as well, it's the comprehensiveness. In 1979, Volcker delivered this huge step increase. Interest rates went into the teens, and the Bank of England and the European central banks all had to follow. But it was a much more restricted process then. So, so you know, we shouldn't underestimate. We talk about capitalism as though it was a continuity. In fact, it's, you know, undergoing massive and dramatic change all the time. And the capitalism of the 70s was a tiny little kind of animal, really, by comparison with what we're dealing with now. Far fewer actors in the system. And what we're dealing with now is one in which, you know, Brazil led the charge. Bolsonaro's Brazil started the tightening, and the success of the Brazilian elite in controlling the inflationary process may have something to do with Bolsonaro's relative success in this recent election, right? There's an untold story there of bourgeois stabilization that begins a year earlier than it does in the in US. So that's the kind of historical setting of our current moment. And yes, we should be alarmed about it because we don't know how this works. We may get the interest rate wrong. That's one set of issues. And the other thing is that as we do this, we may break something. But the prior question might be, and we can talk about what that would look like, but the prior question, as you suggested, is why are we using the interest rate at all? Why is this your instrument? Why do you rely on something as indirect as this? Right? Because you've got the price of rents going up, you've got the price of used cars going up, you've got the price of petrol at the pump going up, and how is the interest rate? I mean, yes, we can construct a macroeconomic logic, but it's incredibly indirect. And it's worth understanding also that America's a little bit weird because... In America, the vast majority of mortgages are fixed you know, terms. Americans assume that 30-year fix is the standard mortgage. That's incredibly abnormal, only possible because Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac underwrite the system. Everywhere else in the world, interest rates adjust smoothly. Everyone is essentially on subprime-style mortgages, notably in the UK. So when interest rates go up there, so I mentioned the UK because like Australia, like Canada, it's one of the Anglosphere economies with a huge real estate bubble. Their interest rates will adjust for the vast majority of borrowers across the next two years, there's no sitting tight. If British mortgage rates go from 1% or 2% to 8 or 9%, the entire society is convulsed by this because people's housing costs triple, right? And that's coming out of your monthly income. So the effect is not simply that it makes borrowing harder. It's that your income gets crushed by your interest payments. So why would you, why would you use a mechanism like this? And this is where I think we have to avoid a kind of misplaced concreteness because you might be tempted to think, right, so if inflation is a problem of prices going up, why don't we just directly control the prices, right? That, that would make far more sense. But the, the thing you shouldn't underestimate is just how damn complicated a modern economy is, right? This goes back to calculation debate territory in the early 1920s. And you don't have to be a Hayekian Austrian economist to believe that this is probably more complicated than it seems when you're sitting around in the kitchen thinking about how better to control because there are literally, not countless, but millions of prices that you would really ideally need to control. And the real worry would be if you control only, say, half a dozen important ones, what kind of distortions do you involuntarily induce in the economy by controlling those? What kind of evasive behavior do you generate? Now, that can, kind of argument can be used for political purposes to disempower the appeal, for instance, of rent control. 
Right? And that's the standard argument. What are the side effects? What is the collateral damage? And the standard, of course, progressive answer should be, well, whether we go for public ownership of housing, because clearly if you impose rent control, you're not going to get adequate investment, private investment. And as progressives, one might welcome that, right? But you have to understand that each one of these moves induces a second and a third and a fourth move, and you have to be ready for those second, third, and fourth move arguments tactically. And around areas like housing, it's easy enough to spell out the logic for that. But around energy, it's much harder to spell out the logic for that, for instance. Right? Why do we right now actually want to control the price of fossil fuels? It's a bunch of European progressives cheering wildly over the fact that they're stabilizing gas prices in Europe. And one understands why, because they've gone up by five, six, seven times, not percent, times. So 500, 600, 700 percent increases. You simply can't tolerate that as a society. But we shouldn't be blind to the fact that the side effects of doing so are catastrophic from the point of view of climate change because you're essentially underwriting the status quo. You're making Europeans into Americans who assume that a fossil fuel price is somehow their birthright. Look, energy prices are part of what needs to be delivered. But if you want to go this alternative route, other than the interest rate, you have to consider price control of various types. It's the only way. The idea that some post-Keynesians have floated that somehow you could address this by investment, in other words, increase supply so as to offset the excessive demand... It sounds really nice on paper, but even the people who advocate it must in their hearts of hearts know that this is absurd because it takes far too long to deliver the payback from the investment. And in the short run, expanding investment will actually add to the heat, demand heat in the economy. So this, I think, is a bad faith argument, to be honest. And I regret that the left has mobilized around this. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And serious anti-inflationary politics from the left has never indulged in this kind of thing. Just go look at how the Bolsheviks talked about this in the 1920s. They're under no illusion about the impact of increasing investment on inflation, or the Chinese in the 1980s. It's this bad argument. So price control is the only game in town. So then you've really got to think to yourself about how you do that and how you minimize the spillover effects. And crucially, what are your levers for doing it? And how does price control not become what it is in many cases around the world, notably in the emerging and low-income markets, various types of encrusted, captured mechanisms for delivering depoliticized benefits for various interest groups in society who cluster around those controls. So notoriously, energy price control in the developing world is a middle-class welfare boondoggle. Right? Because poor people in the developing world don't consume much energy. The people who do are the aspiring middle class, and they around the world will mobilize to defend the relatively cheap gas that they use in their you know, cheap Japanese cars, cheap Japanese and Korean cars you know, built in Mexico or whatever that they're driving. Right? So it's problematic from the very beginning. You have to be very serious if you're going to go down this route about the distributional consequences of these, of these strategies And then the next question I think you've got to ask yourself, if you're thinking about this strategically or even tactically, is agency. Who's actually doing this controlling? Who's going to do it? Because the beauty, inverted commas, of the central bank solution is we have an agency. It's empowered. It has a lever. It acts very generally. It's a small group of men and women who can pull that lever. You can see why it's seductive for technocratically inclined liberals. Like, it's a small group of people who just twiddle this lever, and then we optimize using some kind of model. And hey, presto, right? The world is stabilized. Everything's great. It's a Keynesian fantasy. I mean, and Keynes, don't be confused about Keynes you thought was fiscal policy, monetarist, did monetary policy. Keynes was a monetarist before he was a Keynesian, and its politics are technocratic and elitist. But if you're going to formulate an alternative to that, it's incumbent on you to spell out what the agency is that's going to do this. Now, at one level, if you're in full revolutionary mobilization mode, you get people onto the street to impose price control. Right? You arm the people to impose controls on people who are gouging. 
This is a revolutionary strategy of price control if you want to go down that route. But clearly you need to be in a revolutionary situation for that to make sense. But people who have been in revolutionary situations have used that kind of strategy. You have popular committees that do price control. The beauty of that is you can have popular committees in their tens of thousands around the country doing the price controlling. But that's obviously very, very remote from our circumstances in America in the present day. Another strategy which has more historical relevance is the classic corporatist strategy. And that basically depends on a trilateral deal in which you have organized labor, organized employers, and, and the state, whoever happens to be governing the state at the time, and you should probably distinguish between party and government bureaucracy, and they sit around and bargain out. And so in the 1970s, the Carter administration, the Ford administrations were both trying to do those kind of deals with organized labor in the United States. Warts and all, organized labor as it is, not as we might fantasize, as it is, those people doing the deal. In Britain, that mode of politics was literally known as beer and sandwiches. You invited people into number 10, the organized working class sat down with labor governments and tried to negotiate essentially wage price bargains. And in the 70s in the US, the imagination was quite wide, and it went to deals like, we will restrain our wage claims if and only if you maintain caps on the increase in the price of petrol. So direct trade-offs. But again, you have to think agency. You can do that if you still have intact, powerful, and empowered representations of organized labor. If you don't, I really would challenge the current post-Keynesians to spell out what they think the agency is going to be that's going to deliver this, and why you would imagine that agency would be progressive in its intent, given the structure of the state as it's currently organized and the balance of class forces in a society like the United States. One could imagine that it could go well, but you could easily imagine many scenarios in which it doesn't. So this is why you end up backing away and thinking, oh my God, this is like a can of worms. And if you're a neoliberal, you look at this and say, you know, capture, 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 I told you so all along, what we need to do is back off. And use the central bank, not just to control inflation, but to ensure that we never get into an inflationary situation. Because if you're there, you're stuck. If you're actually having to do counterinflationary policy, there aren't any good options. Right? And so that's where then the meta-politics of anti-inflationary central banking comes in, which is to stabilize, to establish a system in which prices are so stable that they no longer matter to anyone, such that also... No one sees, has any interest in collective organization to defend real wages against what price increases. And I'm not making this up. The BIS literally has econometrics which track the way in which collective organization efforts are related to the inflation rate. And the meta-argument in favor of inflate, uh, controlling inflation as quickly as possible is to block the acceleration of organization efforts on the part of the working class. It is uncanny how explicitly they will spell this out. It's in jargon. They're not explicitly saying what we aim to do is paralyze and neutralize the class struggle, but they might as well be saying that because that's what their econometrics is about. They fear not just that avalanche of prices and wages that I was talking about, but at the level above that, the avalanche of collective organization that historically has been unleashed by wages and prices moving like that. Because at that moment, even for heaven's sake, white-collar workers acquire an interest in joining trade unions. The last time that happened on a really large scale, or the, the moment when that really pushed to the fore in Europe and the United States, is the 70s and not by accident. Right? Because if you're a salaried employee at that point, you have a real interest in joining an organization that can represent your collective interests. And if you look at societies like Argentina, which live with much higher inflation rates than we do, relatively in a relatively comfortable kind of way, 
it's because they have a, at least the insiders, the people inside the organized and formal sector of the Argentine economy, on the basis of Peronist defensive strength, have a pretty confident that their wages and salaries will be adjusted to however rapid the inflation is, even if it's 90%. It's really remarkable if you visit Argentina right now how unfreaked out people are about inflation rates five, six, seven times faster than in the US right now because they have collective organization at the heart of uh, Argentine politics. Wow, that's great. That's, I mean, so there's a lot, there's a lot there. And I, I do want to come back to this point about sort of, you know, collective organization and, you know, what is to be done? How could we even imagine getting to the point where we're, you know, either, either you know, undertaking some kind of corporatist, meaning like tripartite arrangement, or, as you say, the more interventionist controls. But before that, I want to come back to the, the pin that you put in for a moment there on what the consequences of this tightening are. Sorry, we're, we're, not, we're not there. We don't have the kind of collective organization that it would take. We don't have an Argentine level of, level of organization. So we've got a Fed raising interest rates, and we've got other countries, as you say, following suit, but we have an uneven landscape of price formation. And we also have a system in which the dollar prevails as the standard globally. And so what is this all likely to amount to if what we're seeing continues? The happiest scenario is that we get a recession. Uh, and this is what the debate about hard and soft landings is about. Like a soft landing would be an increase in unemployment in the U.S., you know, in the four to five, two, four to five percent, roughly. That's the very optimistic scenario. Obviously, for disadvantaged minorities, particularly black men, the unemployment rate will be much higher and a more sensitive indicator of how much slack there is in the U.S. economy. And this has been one of the real learnings of the last 10 years in radical political economy is the way in which this issue is inherently racialized in the United States. So if you want a real bellwether, a real indicator of the slack in the U.S. labor market, just look at black men's uh, situation. So that's the soft landing. A hard landing would be in the order of 7 to 8% inflation. That would be quite... De- unemployment. That would be a really hard landing in the US case if we went as high as that, um, which would be tragedy for uh, millions of people. But, of course, the trade-off is that, as you can tell from those numbers, unemployment will strike, you know, 1 in 20, 1 in 15 of, 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 of the employed population, whereas inflation eats away at everyone's real income. Right? And that's the, that's the crude and crass trade-off here is that you basically, with unemployment, you're rolling the dice. And the vast majority of workers know that they're very unlikely to become unemployed. But by the same token, everyone knows that unless you adjust your wage and price, you're going to be hit. Now, there are winners from inflation too, especially those people with mortgages. Right? If you've got a mortgage, inflation is the best thing ever. It's amazing. It's very good for taxpayers too, because it eats away at the real value of public debt. And we're not talking enough about that. Two or three years ago, we would have all have taken 4 or 5% inflation as a way of actually addressing these so-called excessive debt burdens. Right now, we're getting a freebie as taxpayers, right? Because the real value is coming down as long as our wages go up. To some extent, there is a real trade-off there. Anyway, that's the kind of zone of, of uh, kind of um, rich country bargaining over inflation. But then, as you said, and I'm glad that you brought it up, there is a global ripple effect. And yes, the dollar is the currency in which the vast majority of international trade is denominated. It's the the currency in which um, tens of trillions of dollars of debt are denominated worldwide. And as the dollar strengthens, why does the dollar strengthen? Because interest rates in the U.S. go up, and so U.S. assets become relatively more attractive than other people's assets. And to gain access to those American assets, you have to buy American currency first before you buy the asset. When we talk about dollar dominance in the world, what we should really be talking about is the dominance of dollar-denominated assets. 
because people don't hold greenbacks per se unless you've got some weird cash strategy. Like when you get dollars, what you want is either to buy American goods and services or you want to buy American assets. So bonds, equity, real estate, foreign direct investment, that kind of thing. So as the American interest rate goes up, the attractiveness of those assets increases and so people flood into the dollar and the dollar goes up. That then squeezes the entire world economy because everyone who's got a dollar debt and is servicing that debt out of revenue they might be earning in the Brazilian economy or the Malaysian economy or the Indonesian economy is caught in between, right, because their revenue flow remains fixed, but the real value of their debts in terms of local currency goes up. It's as though you're, imagine if your mortgage was set in dollars or in a foreign currency, right, you're exposed to that kind of risk. That squeezes the whole world economy. And that will induce a recessionary pressure everywhere else. It will also induce an inflationary pressure everywhere else because all the goods that they buy from the world economy denominated in dollars will go up in price. So there's a stagflationary dynamic in the emerging markets to which they will likely respond by raising their interest rates, which compounds the problem, right? Because as, as they import inflation, they have to counter that. So they raise interest rates. One of the effects of that is their currencies rise against the dollar. It's a classic beggar thy neighbor back and forth, right? It's a kind of uh, spiral. And the really worst scenario is something breaks. And we could talk about that in a second. But as we, as we engage in this collective squeeze with all interest rates going up, the first worry is interest rates will be set too high and you'll have too much of a recession to generate the deflationary hit that you want, deliberately want. They, they're looking for, they're trying to dose the deflationary hit to get it precisely right. But then the other worry, which has become more and more prominent in recent weeks because of events in the UK and elsewhere, is that as you do this, you don't just induce too much unemployment, quote-unquote, but you actually will also snap something in the financial system. And then you're in a much worse place because then you actually have to do emergency efforts to patch the whole system up. Right. So, so by virtue of undertaking this kind of aggressive effort in the United States, we're necessitating other countries to undertake similar efforts. All of this may overshoot... You know, I mean, what they all know is that they're going to raise unemployment. That's what they're trying to do. But what they're not trying to do is create a colossal collapse. And what they're certainly not trying to do is snap something in the financial markets, which then necessitate a rescue operation like we saw in 2020, 2008. And part of that is, I mean, when they snap something, that would induce an even worse recession. But it also then exposes the contradiction of their situation, as we've seen in Britain, where you start with a, you know, sort of cosplay Thatcherite government that's embarking on this like recreation of the 1980s launches itself into a full-on currency and bond market crisis and the bond market crisis is the much more important element of this and lo and behold the Bank of England has to step in and flip from a contractionary policy that was consistent with the government's ambition to actually pumping liquidity into the system so as to stabilize it and that is a really, that's a bad moment right because the previous position was sort of you know, you could say kind of evil but consistent, whereas here you're just in a mess, right? Because you're not actually able to realize your deflationary intent because you're so intent on ensuring that the private pension funds don't implode. Right, right. And so, you know, one of the points you've made is that what all of this, you know, um, sort of raises is the, the urgency of coordination, right, of global coordination um, of monetary policy. And I, I want to kind of get to that and get to a larger question of coordination, how this all pertains to questions of coordinated climate action. But before doing that, I feel like it is sort of incumbent upon us to address this 
point that you're now, I think, getting us to, which is, you know, this this central bank, bank rescue operation. We're seeing the Bank of England kind of like seesaw a little bit. But let's rewind three years, two years, and then rewind a dozen years. Interest rates ultra low mm. since 2008, ultra low interest rates. And the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, and others undertake what was called sort of an unconventional monetary policy. So this is like the reverse of the exact opposite of what we're experiencing right now. And this is, this is perhaps what's necessary if what they're doing right now gets out of control, right? I mean, they may, we may just be in this kind of violent seesawing. But just focusing on that, because I think it's important for us to understand what exactly that was all about, what the stakes of all of that were, what the, maybe the class politics of all of that were. You know, it's kind of an issue on which left and right tend to come together, left and right critics of the Fed, let's say, maybe for very different reasons, but that the Fed's extremely loose monetary policy, the bond buying of the decades, you know, the decade after the financial crisis, which was replicated elsewhere in the world, was from, again, from the left perspective, basically a, a just a, as you said, boondoggle for Wall Street, right? It was it, it, not just, this is the, this, that, on that single word hinges the entire argument, just. And, and that's where I want to get us, right? So on the, on the one hand, it's perceived as a giveaway to Wall Street through asset appreciation. But as you said as well, for homeowners who are experiencing, you know, surging values of their homes, it's not bad. For people, for retirees or people who've got a pension with a bunch of stocks, a rising stock market isn't so bad. For those of us who don't own anything but, you know, an iPhone and a computer, it's not great. But can you just talk through, I mean, maybe not, we don't need to get into the weeds of sort of all the mechanics of this unconventional monetary policy of the decade, you know, prior to the pandemic. But what, broadly speaking, big picture, was it about? What was it trying to do? What were its implications? Who were the winners? Who were the losers? Why was it so? And, 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 and to the left critics, like, what, if any, was the alternative? Yeah. So we're, I mean... We're talking about the phase after 2008 when, when Western central banks discovered that faced with the financial crisis of 2008, um, they needed to take radical action. And what they did was so-called quantitative easing. In other words, they bought private assets. They bought assets, they bought U.S. treasuries, they bought uh, government debt, and they bought in the U.S. huge quantities of mortgage-backed securities off Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and in so doing, swilled liquidity into the economy. And there were two reasons for doing this, and it's important to recognize both of them, which is why I kind of wanted to stop you with just, right? One is a financial market-centered logic, which is that in 2008, the banks were imploding. And the way to rescue a bank is to do lender of last resort. And the way you do lender of last resort is you take some relatively illiquid asset off their books. You don't take the trashy stuff. You leave that on their accounts. But you take the good quality illiquid things off their books and give them cash in exchange. And like in... You know, in any classic bank run, the mere appearance of cash in their accounts or the fact that everyone who could withdraw their money knows they could get cash in unlimited quality stops the run. And so that's why, that's the principal reason why QE was done in 2008 and why it was resumed in 2020 and why it was done in Britain last week, is to stabilize the financial system by, by putting cash in the accounts and making it visible that cash was going to be there. That's a confidence-based operation doesn't really cost anything in any simple sense of the word. There are long-run costs, but in the short run, it's a trade. So you give them cash and you take an asset instead. The taxpayer can make out quite well on deals like this. It depends what happens to the assets. But you're not, you're not as it were, 
you know, putting money in people's pockets or spending any money in any simple sense. The other reason why QE was done was kind of faux de mieux, for lack of alternatives, because, because of political events, ideological but also party political and interest coalitions, fiscal policy, which is the main alternative in standard macro, in other words, taxing and spending policy, was paralyzed. And in the, given the paralysis of fiscal policy from 2010 onwards, more or less around the world, in the U.S. because Obama and team lose the midterms, but not just in the U.S. In Britain, Cameron's administration comes in. In Germany, they, they actually start implementing the debt break. The Greek crisis breaks out. There's a general turn to austerity. And as soon as you do that, you basically lose your main means of stimulating the economy. And by that, we mean stimulating the real economy. What's at stake here is jobs. Not just assets, but jobs. That's the central reformist objection to the left critique of, 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 of QE. Is the left will say, well, the main, the overwhelmingly most important beneficiaries, Henwood has some phrase like this in your latest issue, or as you put it, just the asset holders. That's not the self-understanding of the people, nor does the econometrics suggest that that's a fair judgment. The QE policy was also a poor substitute for a proper stimulative fiscal policy, operating by means essentially of really perverse effects, like when you make rich people richer, they spend more. <laughs> That's actually a kind of fiscal policy. It's kind of toxic, but it's a kind of fiscal policy. Or if you lower interest rates, in the end, somebody will invest more. Uh, pushing on a piece of string, but we're talking full de mieux here, for lack of alternatives, this is why you're doing this. And that is the regime that we were caught in, really, from 2010 onwards. But what I would grant, and this is where the argument of my book shut down, is that there is a sort of, there's an interpretive problem, what you might call the hermeneutic problem for the left in reading this policy situation. Because you look at the world of 2020, or you look at the moment right now in Britain, and set the politics aside, you see a government's intent apparently on a loose fiscal policy. They haven't implemented the government spending cuts yet. Currently, they're increasing the deficit. And they force the central bank into expansive monetary policy, which you could de facto read, and right critics do, as monetizing government debt. In other words, the nightmare in which the government issues debt, the central bank buys it and gives cash, which effectively means government spending is being financed through cash creation, which is the inflationary you know, bogey that everyone's afraid of. De facto, if you look at the balance sheets, it can work out like that. But at no point, if you look at the strategic intent of the central bankers right now, is that ever their idea. These people are not converts to MMT or neo-Keynesianism. They are focused on the stability of the financial markets, which is why they do this. And it's not even, an, it's not, the aim is not even to provide a long-run benefits to the holders of monetary assets. It's literally just to keep the markets afloat. It really is like the, you know, the, elect the electric paddles, electric shock in an ER room where you're putting the paddles to the lifeless corpse and reanimating it. That's what they're effectively doing. And they've had to do that now three times if you count the British case. Those are, that's really the ambiguity of this policy. I don't think from a progressive point of view there's really much of an argument against it. I mean, you would not want lender of last resort to fold its hands and say, no, screw you, financial capitalism. I want to see you burn and go down in flames. Like, you could try that policy, but that's an outright catastrophism. That's really saying, right, we want to raise the tension in this and see what happens next. There haven't been many people who've advocated that kind of policy because the, the amount of damage it would do is just... Is, we, you know, we don't really have a model for describing that kind of world. But nevertheless, what this effectively means, and, and this is where the left and the right do converge, is that you are 
by a kind of blackmail mechanism bought into being kind of enablers, right? It's a kind of codependent relationship between the public balance sheet and this out-of-control drunk that is the financial system. And you come back again and again and again and fix the mess that the drunk has made because the alternative is worse. Right. And that, I mean, I think that, so clearly, you know, not undertaking something completely ambitious and completely unprecedented after 2008 and in the decade that followed leaves us in a really nightmarish situation. It also has this dark side of fueling asset appreciation, right? Just giving away to Wall Street to speculate, speculate, speculate. But what it also does, another contradiction, and and I think you've written about this and, and others have as well, is it creates the context within which, at least for a couple months in early 2020, the Biden administration thinks it's possible to undertake massive public investment. There is an environment that the Biden administration is entering with, you know, on the heels of a decade of very low interest rates and very easy money, low long-term borrowing costs, where a massive public infrastructure program, a massive climate program seems possible. And that's, you know, what we can say what we want about the limits or, or the strengths of Build Back Better and certainly, you know, whatever we got. But there was a situation there. And you even heard, you know, at the time, people like Brian Deese and others in, in the administration talking about this, right? We've got an opening here by virtue of, you know, this decade of easy money, which may have had its adverse consequences, may also have been necessary. At least it gives us an opportunity to take on big, big investment plans. That window seems to have closed or at least be rapidly closing right now with what's going on with not just inflation, but with the, with the response to it. And so I guess, I mean, here's, you know, just, I guess maybe we can kind of try to bring it all together by reflecting on what the stakes of the current response to this crisis, or if we want to call it, of inflation are for the prospects for, you know, whatever we need. And this, of course, I think involves talking about alternatives, which you've alluded to, but like, you know, where are we in terms of the political economy of climate potential, given what's going on right now? I mean, I think that characterization is correct. And, and it, you know, it, it has deflated and if not collapsed and disappeared as a historic option at this moment. And, and we all know why. I mean, in, in the US, it has to do with just the lack of majorities in Congress and the failure of the Democrats to marshal the majority that they did have and to agree some sort of coalition bargain between the centrists and the left wing of their own party. But setting that aside for a second, if you just want to talk about strategic options for the left, between monetary policy of the central bank variety and fiscal policy, you need to introduce two other key elements, right? So beyond the spending and investment program and the capacities of the central bank balance sheet, you need to introduce you know, a demand for progressive and radical taxation on the one hand, and on the other hand, structural reform and transformation of the institutional structures that would change your options. So even in an inflation, let's grant that we're now in a macroeconomic situation like this. You could have done an Inflation Reduction Act, mansion style, that was five times bigger. Right? Why not? Why not actually have a 2 to $3 trillion taxation program that would claw back considerable amounts of the winnings of the top 1% in American society and use that to balance in macroeconomic terms. Why would you want to do this? Because in a moment like this, with a, if we grant there's an inflationary pressure, you don't want to add $3 trillion in stimulus to that situation. Let's admit that conservative argument. But we still want to do $3 trillion of climate investment. Well, the answer is tax $3 trillion out of demand at the high income end, 
and then you meet your macroeconomic balance criterion, you get your investment. Right? You can do that. That's, that's not an infeasible option. If you're having, if you do a Tory-style program and you get a bond market panic, right? imagine we're not the Tories. Imagine this is a, a Corbyn government, not a Starmer government. Imagine this had been a Corbyn government and they had introduced a plan like this and it had been investment. We know McDonald and his team had wargamed precisely this scenario. They knew this was very likely. So what do you do? You prepare by A, offering taxation, which fixes the fiscal policy side, and B, you go in hard with regulation of different types to change the behavior of the speculating financial capitalists such that their action is less disruptive. Right? Up to and including, in McDonald's case, because these were serious leftists, rethinking the structures of the state, which are not autonomous from this going on, right? but totally imbricated with it. It's an incredibly anomalous situation in the UK right now where the prevailing Tory government appears to be at odds with the UK Treasury bureaucrats and prevailing opinion in the city of London. I mean, this is freakish. This has never happened in history before. The Labour Party knew that, generally speaking, when it comes into power, that group forms, across the state-private divide, a phalanx of opposition to what it's trying to do. So you have to break that. You know, none of this mamby-pamby stuff that American Democrats engage in with this you know, benign state that will somehow act New Deal-style. Right? That wasn't the New Deal of the 1930s either, and that's certainly not the actually existing structures of American power. The deep state talk is not entirely off base. Right? There is an underlying power structure that acts against the autonomy of political agents, whether of the, of the extreme populist right or of the left, very rarely tested in the United States, the alternative option, but in, in Europe has been tested, right? And so as the Greeks have discovered, the Portuguese have discovered, the, Span the Spanish have discovered, it's been a long time since anyone in Britain tried since the 1970s, you have to have a reform politics which is about markets and about corporate actors, but also about governance structures. Because otherwise, you're going to be, it's not even a piece of string you're going to be pushing on, right? It's actually going to be a piece of elastic that's going to snap back at you, right? So you need to have that kind of comprehensive reform program. But if you're willing to have that four-dimensional strategy, which would use the central bank, which again would have to be disciplined, right? You have to get inside the bureaucracy and change the bureaucracy's view of the world because otherwise you're not going to make progress with them. So you use them to provide bond market stability. You use taxation to square the macroeconomic balance. You target the public investment to achieve the goals that you want. And then you have a politically backed program because how can you do that you know, that bureaucratic change, you can't do it by other bureaucrats. It needs to be backed by extra parliamentary mobilization, by civil society in the widest sense acting on this process. You combine all of those four things, there's room to do stuff, right? But you do have to be willing to use all four. If you, if you miss any one of those four, it seems to me you are going to run into some binding constraint on what you can do. And that will be true for climate as it will be for progressive change. There is no obstacle in the current moment to doing the scale of climate investment that we need, but it has to be backed up by those other three elements. Right? You have to discipline the power structure, you have to be willing uh, to use the central bank, and you have to be willing if the macroeconomic conjuncture demands it to use high taxation. This is just standard MMT, it's classic post-Keynesianism. It's about the effective balance of aggregate demand and how you fit your investment plans into that. Right. So it may be unthinkable technically to manage to control prices, but if we tax the rich, we take over the Fed, if we 
uh, we change if we if we uh, undertake massive public investment and if we regulate the hell out of Wall Street, then we it, are in it'll a be all good position. Yeah. Which I mean is you know that's what we've known we've got to do anyway. So, so that's what you want. Right? Yeah. I mean, like, so let's face it, that is the minimum. Anything less than that, and you and you are settling for some third or fourth best. Yeah. And you may still make progress in the direction you want. And crucially, you may be able to avoid historic disasters. I mean, and this is relevant, right? Not just history. America immediately thinks of the Great Depression. Greece, Spain, Italy suffered a 1930s-style depression in the 2010s, deliberately brought on, not by the failure to do all of those four transformative politics, but by a failure of sensible macroeconomics to colonize the European Central Bank, right? Like, that will give you Greece. I mean... As in, as in an unemployment rate of 25% and youth unemployment rate closer to 40%. And so the stakes here, even of much lesser arguments, it's worth fighting for each one of those four things separately. Right? Likes of me focus most of our attention on you know, very conventional macroeconomic policy choices in the space between spending, taxing, and, and the central bank because the difference is between Obama's America and Greece in the 2010s. And that is a difference worth fighting for. It is not revolutionary transformation by any means. It is in some senses, you could say, as it were, entrenching the status quo by making it more bearable. So it is a wager on and based on a certain set of assumptions about the likelihood of radical transformation and the likelihood on the payoff from butting your head against a brick wall, as Syriza discovered in Greece in 2015 with a strategy that's more ambitious. But that is hugely debatable and it's almost a matter of personal identity where you line yourself up on that grid. But yes, if you want to do the whole hog, let's be clear. I mean, that's what a revolutionary, not even revolutionary, that's simply what a consistent and radical progressive economic policy has to entail, action on all of those four fronts. I think that's a great uh, note to end on. Thank you, uh, Adam, as well as Samir. Adam, I don't know if this is the first time uh, that you've done a socialist magazine event at like an anarchisty space like this one, maybe not where you're normally hanging out, but we appreciate you coming out uh, to hang out with us tonight. Thanks.